there's a reality for me that loving people, the evidence of it is seen in, in the manner that are you moved towards their story. Um, and, and not just to knowing their story, uh, but really to having the, the true expression of love show up when you hear their story. Uh, so not just seeing the, the Samaritan on the side of the road, and not just seeing the, the gentleman on the side of the road and just kind of passing him, uh, but seeing the person who's beat down, broken, and, and, and seeing them, hearing their story, and then moving toward them to provide aid. So, uh, so a lot of our story can be seen as like, well, I could stand up here and go, what's our mission? Uh, it's to love Jesus and love people and to love our city. And, and we can state all these mission outlines. Um, but those are our stated missions. They may or may not be the actual expression of our community or of a community. Uh, when I say, like, let's love our city really well, we may or may not be accomplishing uh, a, a true Jesus love for our city yet. I don't know. I don't know that I would be able to be the judge for that or not. But I do know that these, these goal lines or that these mission statements, like this is our mission, they're things that we say so we can be rallied to them. But really when we're talking about what's our story, it's not a goal. It's not a mission. It is the bonds that tie us together. They are the things that, that truly draw us near towards one another rather than dispel or detract us from one another. And it's how we choose to respond to these elements that's really important. Because how many of you guys know that there's a lot of things that we think or that we do that, that really do disconnect us from people? And there's a lot of times I've recognized in my life that I have certain ways I think that disconnect me from people. And, and maybe sometimes it doesn't show up like I hate them. Maybe it just shows up like I just don't go around them. Or I just, I just avoid them and I just go, oh, you know, they're over there. I'm over here. We're just on different paths and different journeys. But if I were really looking to my heart, I've disconnected my value from their journey. And I've disconnected my compassion from their journey. It's like Jesus on the boat, instead of going to the shore in compassion and being moved to those who needed a shepherd, it would have been as if he would have just kept going on his boat. It's not always convenient for us to take our journey and our path and our momentum and our trajectory and to turn to people and connect to their story. And actually, oftentimes, more than not, I think connecting to people's stories is inconvenient to progress for our own personal dreams and passions. Totally. Because there's this idea, and you can see it in James, there's this idea of our passions and, and my dreams and my passions and my interests that can actually show up as very selfish. Like even if you just think about, like say I had a dream to have, uh, to, 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 to invest in this community and build the mountain to where there was like a thousand mountain movers, right? And to build this, this campus over here, we've got 16 acres. And so say that was my dream, right? And, and then I begin to pursue this dream. I begin to run after this dream and I'm like, yeah, let's build people. Let's, let's attract thousands and let's build a campus and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and all, all of a sudden, like, what happens when, when the need of the people slows that down? 
What happens when, when the next thing that's needed isn't like a, a big rally to attract more people, but just meeting and partnering with the 250 or 300 people in your orbit? See, it's not always convenient to stop and connect to someone's story and ask the simple question, how can I use all of my resource or whatever resource I can to supplement your healing journey or your place of need? Sometimes what's more productive is for me to sprint ahead and go, ooh, that's terrible. <laughs> We're gonna keep on going here. I'm building my business, I'm building my church, I'm building my career, I'm building my resume, I'm building my bank account. I have these goals, I have these things I want to accomplish. And there's nothing wrong with having these goals. There's nothing wrong with having motivation even. And there's nothing wrong with having these like really big ideas of where you can be. But there is something wrong if the only thing that is determining your pace and your direction is a personal and an individualistic goal narrative. There's something really wrong if your dreams only impact your personal outcome in your personal life. Because there's this thing in the Bible that talks about us being drawn to one another and loving one another. There's these stories in the Bible that we'll read about and we'll show where Jesus shares these parables or shares these stories where it's so obvious that our stories, so much of it is developed when we choose to go like this from our goals to going like this to the person who's there, who's no longer capable of actually running along their journey and doing their thing. I like to think that the mountain could be a highways and byways church. And what does a highway and byway church look like? Well, if we, if we go ahead and pull up our scriptures here, Luke 14, 12 through 24, it's a really long uh, parable, and I've got some other scriptures I want to read as well, so I'm going to read some of it and then skim in or, or, or over, overview some of it. So if you, if you look at this, Luke 14, 12 through 24, uh, it says, he said, to the, uh, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you have a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, invite the crippled, invite the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Uh, we're going to pause here because I love this, this opener right out of the gate. Because it says, it says something that I think is counterintuitive to a, to a person that's trying to build their individual narrative or story which is if you're trying to build something individually alone, then you don't invite those who can't give back to you because it's not a good investment. But in fact, you only invite the people that you want to rub shoulders with or you want to network with or you want to host so they can advance your individual narrative and goal, right? Like if I'm a businessman, I'm trying to build a business, I'm not inviting the lame, the crippled, and the beaten down, the person that can't contribute to my business ventures unless I have a different mindset that isn't only individually, individualistically related. If I'm this person that's, I, this is my goal and it drives my life and I don't have the balance and I don't have the priority of, of, of caring for and loving the crippled and the lame and the blind, then it's not gonna cause me to pause when I see the crippled, lame, and the blind. It won't have me throwing parties and feasts for the crippled, lame, and the blind. It'll actually have me throwing parties and gathering people and building connection and relationship with those that can supply 
to me what I need for my journey. See, there's something that has to break in this, in this passion pursuit alone and this dream pursuit alone uh, for my own life that my goals must be in the context and must be yielded to the nature of God. Remember what the Bible says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Even if we feel like our dreams or our passions are godly, having godly passions or dream is not the same thing as being submitted to God. Does this make sense? It's not hard for me to say, hey, look, let's have more people in our church. That sounds like a godly dream, right? That sounds like a godly mission. It's not the same thing as me as a pastor being submitted to God in everything I do as a pastor. To have ideas that are seemingly related to godliness is not the same thing as being submitted to God in relationship. And when you see that you're submitted to God in relationship, you move the way he moves. You're moved by compassion. And when people have, when our people are around you are lame, are crippled, and maybe it's literally or maybe it's symbolically, emotionally crippled, paralyzed by fear, or emotionally crippled, paralyzed by trauma. I don't know what it exactly looks like around you, but when you look at the need of those around you, and you look at the, the brokenness of people around you, have you been moved by compassion? Or have you chosen a narrative that, seeming, that is seemingly justified, that is just simply my story? See, there's something that breaks between the my story and my journey and my passion and my dreams. There's something that breaks from that my narrative to the our narrative. And the thing that breaks it is us saying yes and giving permission to God to move our heart in compassion, to move our heart to the painful places, to the places that are sad, to the places that don't make sense to us, to the places where people, it maybe feels like, like we're wasting our time on them. Have you ever had a relationship where you're investing in them and you feel like it's a waste of time? Like there's been no outcome on it? Have you ever had this relationship? I, it's one of those things where you're like, man, well, how much do I give to this relationship before I'm just like, all right, we're cool here. We're good now. Well, I, I don't know. It, it's a little bit confusing to me when, when, we, when we think like that because when I look at the, the posture and the move that Jesus had in relationship with people, he didn't exactly give in the measure that was given to him. And he really didn't even just give to those who gave to him. In fact, he's being pretty clear here to give to those who don't have the ability to repay you. This was always my, this was always my beef with the 80-20 the rule in leadership. Have you heard of it? Uh, and I re, it's a Maxwellian principle, a John Maxwell. He's incredible, brilliant, amazing, and awesome. All these things, right? But there, I always had this beef with this 80-20 rule, which was that I was supposed to, as a leader and a pastor, put 80% of my input, investment, or effort into my top 20%. And whoever my top 20% givers or leaders were, I was to put in 80% of my energy. So this is the law. It's the law of the 80-20. And it yields the most. It yields the most in leadership. And I actually don't disagree with this mindset uh, that, that giving your investment to those that are contributing the most is a good idea. I don't disagree with this idea. But here's the misleading concept to it is that it teaches me to give only when there is a yield on my investment. And the same thing can kind of happen with our giving culture like tithes and offerings is that we've learned to give 
when we get a yield on our giving. And I believe in the Bible, pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall be given unto you. I, I believe in the Bible. I love all the promises of yield. I love all these things. They're amazing. But if I've only learned to give when I have a yield, there's a problem. When I've only learned to give when there is a yield on my investment, there's an issue. There's an issue if I can only give to those that have put significant change in my pocket. <clears throat> I, I've seen moments and times where I've invested in relationships and my investment in those relationships did not yield any benefit for me. And sometimes, and these are, these are sometimes annoying, but sometimes I've seen that I've invested in relationships and before I could get a yield, they moved and the, the, the harvest of my investment went to another church or another uh, not-for-profit or another business or organization. Have you seen this before? And you're like, oh, it's such a booger, man. It's such a bummer, dude. Like we were right there. And I believed in the whole time. The harvest was plentiful and it was coming. And then they moved. Oh. Oh, what a tragedy. The yield was coming on my investment. And remember the, 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 Bible, the, the Bible story was uh, the, 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 uh, the sower, the waterer, the harvester. Remember this, this story that Jesus talked about that there's those who, there's those who sow, there's those who water, and those who harvest. Uh, and not to really be concerned about whether you're harvesting or you're the waterer or you're the sower. And, uh, and sometimes it's tough to be the perpetual sower. Because, you know, it's always under the ground. It's always invisible. You can't see it with your eyes. Seed growth is not that encouraging to the natural eye. Because it's happening underground. It's invisible maturation. It's invisible progress that you can never hang your hat on. You, there's no testimony to it. There's no like, hey man, the seed went from being just a seed to breaking its shell and then beginning the root process. Wasn't that cool? And everyone was like, man, I haven't seen any behavior change. <laughs> that person's still lame. <laughs> and not meaning they can't walk, but they're lame. Like, <laughs> they're not cool. They're not good. They're not even a good Christian. I don't even know if they're a Christian. And all the while, we make, we make these judgments and assertions towards, like, their fruitfulness. Their, you know, faith without works is dead. Yes, but the fruitfulness of God takes time in a life because it doesn't happen immediately. What it takes is somebody that is faithful to go to the lame, the crippled, and those that can't repay them, don't have the ability to repay them, and to invest seeds anyways. And then to do it again and again and again and water it and water it and water it. And maybe sometimes before you even invest a seed, you kind of till the ground you pull up the hard ground and you just spend time with them. You love on them. This is the entirety of youth ministry is you spend 99 hours with them so that you can tell them about God for one hour. <laughs> and the one hour after 99 of love and connection is way more productive than the other way around. And you know what I'm talking about. The hard ground requires time spent with it. The, the, the farming ground, the gardening ground requires time spent. And it requires thoughtfulness. It requires, I'm going to move towards you. And what I like about this is it goes on to say, when, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, 
And I really love Jesus. He just jukes all the time. <laughs> but he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to those who had been invited. And the next few verses here are about people that gave excuses as to why they couldn't go. I bought a land, got to take care of it. Ox, got to take care of it. I just got married. And I wonder if the wife said he couldn't go out that night. But, <laughs> but then it goes on to say uh, in verse 22, and the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to him, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled, for I tell you, none of those who were invited shall taste my banquet. Here's the interesting thing about this, is that oftentimes we're very passive in our, like, I will care for people, but only if they kind of like enter into my orbit. Only if they come to my house and only if they come to my small group am I going to do this or only if they come to my orbit. But, but what I see here isn't just a willingness to host the lame, the blind, and the crippled, and the poor. Not just a willingness, but actually a pursuit. See, a willingness to host these folks is great. Honestly, first step. But the true nature of God's heart is not just a willingness to host these people or these folks that would be in a place that can't pay you back in the manner that you've paid them or invested in them. It's not just the willingness to host. It's also this intense pursuit of people. It's also this, I'm going to call you every week and I'm going to pursue you. It's also this text thread that you create with people. It's also this thing that when you haven't seen them in three or four months, you send them encouragement or you send them a text, you send them something. You go show up at their house with muffins or cookies or, or something like that. It's this pursuit. And why, why is the pursuit important? Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us which means that in our place of incompetency and incapability, God pursued us and paid a price without any promise of return on investment. So why do we need to pursue? Because it's in God's nature and we want to move with God. It's in his nature to be moved towards people that are crippled, lame, broken, to go out to the edges and the hedges and the far places of society, the outcast places of society, and to invite them to a party, to invite them to a feast, to invite them to eat together and spend time together. I've always liked it when, the, when uh, like churches would invite people to eat. Uh, like literally just anybody, like full neighborhoods. We've done park days where we just put flyers on the neighborhood and said, come eat. Just have fun. And you know, we didn't do a salvation call at the gathering. We didn't gather everyone up and say, we paid for food so we can try and get you to get saved. And I don't mind these initiatives, these evangelistic narratives and efforts, but, but really my approach right now is simply this. Can I get a bunch of people in the same place and just love on them and connect with them and build relationships? Can I give them a sense that they belong even before they commit to my Jesus? Can I give them a sense that I love them unconditionally even if they don't accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior? Can I really give them that sense? And how do I give them that sense that I accept them, I love them, and they belong? Well, have you ever been to a family that when you walked in the room, you just felt like you belonged? 
Have you ever been in this kind of, this home, and you just walk in, and you're like, I just, I don't know what it is, but I feel like I'm home. And then have you been to the families where you're like, man, I think I should probably leave? <laughs> like, and no, and no fault of their own, or maybe, I'm not sure, it doesn't matter, but like, there's just this, there's this sense of undertones of love. People can sense when they belong, and people can sense when they only belong based on conditions or commonalities. See, the body of Christ doesn't need to do more events where we invite more people. What we need to get rid of is the poison of judgment based on difference. It's a natural human instinct for me to rally towards common interest or commonalities. It's really, it's very natural. It's very natural for me to be drawn to the same kind of political party or mindsets or to the same kind of uh, game type fun stuff, you know, the same sports or the same entertainment stuff. We like the same movies. Uh, uh, C.S. Lewis or, uh, yeah, he's, C.S. Lewis said friendship is born at the moment when one person says to another, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. See, oftentimes this is natural friendship. It's like, Oh, like when we were dating, my wife and I, when we were dating, like what, what's the really great thing to do? <gasps> Me too. That's so cool. You like cheese? So do I. <laughs> you just find anything that's like generally accepted and loved. You like sugar? <gasps> so do I. That's so fun. Yay. <laughs> you don't like that over there? Well, I never really decided whether I like that or not, but now I've decided I don't like that. <laughs> I, there's this, <clears throat> in friendship, it's pretty natural for us to build connections based on like commonalities. Like, you know, oh, Tony, you like football too. So, oh, so do I. Let's watch a football game. And we just sit there and go, oh, Tom Brady's the best, isn't he? And Tony's like, I hate Tom Brady. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> And we just have this common interest over just like loving and, and hating. <laughs> I, I, really, I really think there's this, there's this standard that God or Jesus set that, that his, his connection with people and who he ate with and who he built connection with, a lot of times it was people that were very dissimilar to him that had so many differences. I mean, he ate with prostitutes. He didn't have anything in common when it came to purity with prostitutes. He, he ate with tax collectors who are known with the reputation of being corrupt. He, he wasn't corrupt in any way. In fact, his reputation, who he was, it, it was, he was, he was a perfect, like he's perfect. We understand this theologically. Our study of God, we understand he, Jesus was perfect. So he had, he had like no, he had very little commonalities with, with the people that he connected with. He had very little common ground for him to go, yeah, yeah. Because the nature of humanistic love is done through the vein of, oh, we have a common ground. So then I'm drawn to you in relationship. I'm drawn to you in connection. This is natural for me. This feels good. But, but the law of unconditional love needs no common ground to build a connection. And actually, if you think about it, common ground... It's not bad, but if it is the determining factor for your connection, it is also the reason that we have division. So I'm a Patriots fan. Other Patriot fans were like, yo, right? Like, come on, Patriot fans. There's like only one or two in this whole church I've investigated. 
<laughs> I wanted to know why it was always quiet when I brought up the Patriots, you know? I was like, is it that all of the Patriot fans are quiet or that there are none? It's that there are none. <laughs> and I know when they're here, I see them in the crowd and I'm like, yeah, buddy. But here, I'm a Patriots fan. So to other Patriot fans, we have a, a place of connection. But actually, the same place of connection I have because I'm a Patriot fan is a place of disconnect with like a Steelers fan. So when I determine my connections based on common ground, I say yes to one relationship and no to another one. This is why it's dangerous to build only connections based on nationality, race, entertainment, any of these elements. And these elements aren't bad to understand and experience the richness of what God's intent for each race and nationality is. That's not what I'm saying. It's beautiful. I love the story and the narrative of each culture and race and ethnicity. What I'm saying is none of these should define our connection or love. Sure, some connections will be easier. It may be easier for you to have a connection with somebody who has a common history as you do, or a common testimony as you do, or a common sports team, or a common temperament. You're like, oh, you have a short fuse? So do I. <laughs> that's going to be, that's understood. That's okay. It's not bad that it's easier to connect with some than others, but it is bad if I make a law of connection over the ease of connection. Sometimes it's a labor of love. Sometimes you need to have God till the ground in your heart for you to be able to have roots of love for different kinds of people or people that have hardened your heart through hurt and trauma and pain. And then that's when it becomes a personal narrative of growth where you're like, wow, I feel God growing my heart for dot, dot, dot. Fill in the blanks and follow that narrative hard. Go hard in the paint is what they say in basketball, which means... You just go in with reckless abandon. You're just rebounding. You're throwing elbows. You're dropping hips. I was the only basketball player that I think knew how to hip check, and it's because I was taught basketball by a hockey player. <clears throat> and literally, like, and I've told you guys this story under the streetlights. My dad taught me how to be tough when I was like 11 or 12, and he taught me hockey rules to play basketball, and I was always in foul trouble after that. Like, Four fouls, I would foul out. Three fouls at the very least. My average was like 4.9 fouls. And I felt like if I didn't use all of my fouls, I wasn't using all of my tools. <laughs> I wasn't using all of my strength to win that game. He taught me, hey, you know, when they're jumping, kind of hold on to their shirt. You know what I mean? But do it close without an extended arm. So I spilled your water. Sorry, babe. I, I, oh, do it close so they can't see so they can't see your arm. And, and then you know what? When you're close to them, kind of give them a little one of these right here in their ribs. And the ref won't see it, but the ref will see the retaliation. <laughs> this is how I was taught to play basketball, guys. Can you all stretch your hands and pray for me right now? <laughs> I figured out quick I can't play basketball like this as a pastor. About 10 years ago, I could tell you that story another time. Or maybe never. That would probably be good. But there's this... There's this there's this reality that we have where if we look at, why does isolation happen? Why does this independent thing happen? Well, you'd see it as, as people are drawn in a natural way to those things that are common. And typically the people that are isolated are the people that are, are different. They don't look the same, sound the same, and maybe even they've learned to be kind of 
offensive to protect themselves. Um, I've, had, I've, had, uh, I've had people that I've attempted to connect with that have said all kinds of interesting things to me to try and get me away. They've said things to me like, hail Satan. Uh, they've, they've flipped me off before. Like, these are real things. And, and all the while, I'm just like, man, there must be like a really, like, there must be a real reason I'm in their life. And, and it's to see beyond our indifference right now, which is, you know, that they praise Satan and I don't. <laughs> it's okay to laugh at that. <clears throat> it's, it's important that, that I'm able to look beyond these things, that we're able to look beyond these things that would seemingly disconnect us because oftentimes the most isolated people are the people that have the most outcast, indifferent connection, disconnect, no ability to connect with God's love at all. And when you see somebody who's isolated in a community that's choosing isolation, sure, it's easy for us to say, well, if only they would just accept the invite to the banquet, then we would be good. I've even seen pastors and leaders grow discouraged over people's unwillingness to respond to things that can help. Man, gosh, like if they would just, it would just, and they would just, if we could just, if they would just, yeah, yeah, totally, for sure. Of course, when we put out a healing banquet thing and then none of the broken people come, but all the healed people come, of course that's discouraging. Of course it's discouraging because you think, well, maybe if the isolated, broken, and those that needed healing would have come, something could have happened for sure. But did you go and knock on their door? Well, I don't know. I made an announcement to everybody. I told the whole home group, did you go to the person that you know won't show up as isolated themselves in their life and they won't go to anything until you look them in the eyes and say, it's meaningful to me that you go because I see you and I'm partnering in your journey. Because if you give to those that can't give back, it's terrifying. Because without reciprocity, without reciprocation of giving, we feel like we're on the lurch. We feel like we're an iceberg, but it's all good. It's okay to be an iceberg when, it's, when it comes to going into the highways and byways and inviting people to a banquet. It's okay to be left out on the lurch. It's okay for someone to reject you. I can't tell you how many people I've texted to reach out to and they never texted me back. I can't tell you the amount of people that I've called. I can't tell you the amount of people I've gone to coffee with or lunch with and it was just, there was nothing after that. And I can't tell you the amount of times I've reached out with no return on investment. And initially this can seem daunting and even terrifying and it can even feel very challenging. But there is a danger in isolation that we've got to understand is that one, we isolate ourselves when we are discouraged, when we are believing lies, when we are afraid or embarrassed or full of guilt and shame. That's what we do. That is what we do when we isolate ourselves is for these reasons. Not all people isolate, but when we isolate, it's oftentimes this list that's contributing to it. When was the last time you saw somebody isolate because they were overflowing with unconditional love? No, it doesn't happen. You know why? Because if they were overflowing with unconditional love, they wouldn't isolate not because they need somebody, but because they realize what they carry, unconditional love, someone else needs. So either you're connecting because you need something or you're connecting because you realize you have something to give and you're moved by compassion. You're moved by compassion to heal, to give, to serve, to instruct. 
What does it look like when we eliminate isolation in our community? I think it looks like all of us engaging in pursuit of the isolated. Leaving the 99 and going after the one. When that one sheep just trots out of the sheepfold and starts heading down the hill and starts heading to another pasture or to another green grass across, run, sprint, drop everything and go and pursue connection with an isolated human being. I believe it's what happened when you saw the disciples after Jesus resurrected from the dead. He walked on water to get to them. And, and, and this was another time they were in a storm, they were on the boat, uh, and we're not gonna jump into the passage, but they're storm on the boat. This is when Peter ends up walking towards, back towards Jesus. But Jesus was walking on water, and they thought it was a ghost on the water. Remember this story? And Jesus pursued connection with them even beyond this great barrier and pursued connection with them when, when honestly some of them, and actually a lot of them, they should have been at odds. They left Jesus hanging. Most of them left Jesus hanging when he got murdered, when he got brutally beat, when he got dragged through the, sh the streets in a shameful manner, when he got shamed in front of all of society and he got murdered. Most of the disciples were like... Uh, what was I doing before I, I followed this guy? Let's go back to that. There was a disconnect that happened. They gave the proverbial, hey man, I don't know that guy. They, they gave the proverbial like bird to Jesus as they were walking away. They're like, man, I'm out of here. I'm, out, I'm done with this, bro. I can't manage that. And yet Jesus pursued them. It's what I find so interesting about connection and isolation that when you see a people isolated or individuals isolated, don't just try and understand why there's an isolation, run after them. Yes, try and repair what created isolation or what created a disconnect, but don't make your connection or your pursuit of connection about agreement or common ground. Because for like more than half of the world, you're not gonna be able to find the common ground you need to love unconditionally. And even the best and the closest people to me, if I didn't seek unconditional love, there would be disconnect that would be learned every day. Every single day. Can we be moved like Jesus is moved towards people who are isolated? Can we be moved towards people that have a difference and that have indifference to us? I even think it takes a special focus to the people who have a significant amount of difference to me. It comes natural for me to, to, to love somebody that's like me. To love a friend, that's so easy, right? That's so much easier than to love someone who I have no common ground with or an enemy, conflicting ground. That takes intentional focus. That takes a, a, a labor of saying yes to their personality type when it literally crawls under your skin. You know what I'm talking about? Those people that are in your life that their personality just makes your skin crawl. Maybe you're like a really tough, like I work hard, I go to work every day, nine to five, that's part of your DNA. And then you've met a millennial that's like, I don't know what I wanna do. It's gonna take you digging deep to love that guy. I'm, I'm really serious. Like uh, I was sitting down and I was listening to uh, this, uh, this couple of guys at a table across from me. Uh, and they were, uh, they, were, they were older folks, they definitely weren't millennials. Um, but they were like old school thinkers, old school thinkers. And I was raised by a hockey player, so I, I tend to think that I'm a little bit more old school than not. 
Um, but they were old school thinkers. And the conversation was really interesting to hear. They were talking about how old school is so much better. They were talking about how like it, back in their day, their generation, have you heard this kind of a narrative before? And, and I find it really interesting because each generation has like a similar thing they say about their generation and the next generation. Have you ever noticed this? And, and I'm not even saying that there wasn't a strength in that generation that now they're frustrated that it doesn't exist in our generation. That may be true, but it's interesting the way that we're, we choose disconnect to an entire generation because they're not like us. For all intents and purposes, uh, maybe the majority of millennials are lazy <laughs> and don't want or and are selfish. Like this is what the stats say. So for all intents and purposes, maybe an entire millennial generation or the majority of them is lazy and selfish. But if they are, what would compassion do to your posture when you recognize that? Would it have you write them off or would it have you move towards them in a significant way? Would it have you criticize and cut? Or would it have you bring bandages and bring equipment in order to instruct? Would it have you washing feet or condemning for having dirty feet? But look, don't even just look at the millennial versus like baby, baby boomer generation. Look at generation Z. Is that what's next? After millennial? I don't even know. Somebody, if you know, it's okay. Just the next generation after millennial. And then the millennial generation. Look at the tensions that'll begin to be get built there or even go older than baby boomer generation. And, and you look at those places and you look at all of society has this really great invitation to move away from people because of difference. To criticize, to use my strength as a way to cut rather than a way to heal. I really believe that, that God moves us towards generationally, rationally, uh, culturally, nationally, God moves us towards, towards those that have weakness in place that we have strength. Towards those who have an inability in places that we have grace. I really, I really see that this is the heart of Father and that this is why people will walk into communities where Father is to be represented like a church community and go, man, I just, I just didn't feel accepted. I just didn't feel like I belonged. And some of that's on a person, for sure. Sometimes you cannot, you cannot determine anything better. It could have been the most loving place. You could literally be washing feet in the middle of everything. And you could have like every generation getting along, every race getting along. And somebody will still walk in and just go, you know, nah. I just didn't really feel it. Didn't feel like a loving community. And meanwhile, we're giving all of our savings to one another. And we're like literally the Acts church that's like got all things in common and is giving everything. So sometimes it's just on a person they don't want. They don't want to connect at all. It doesn't matter who it is. They want to stay in hurt and pain. And that's, that's a reality sometimes. It's a sad one, but sometimes it's a reality. But if we're really partnering in this pursuit of connection, it's not about whether we reap the harvest in that person's life. It was, was I, was I intentional and was I faithful to give in the moment I was, I was capable of giving? Was I faithful to the pursuit of those who are on the outside looking in, 
Was I, was, I, was I faithful to not just being in here and loving people well and being at the front door and at the altar and loving well, but was I faithful to find myself into different communities and to talking to different people? Uh, like I started going to like comic book stores and I started playing video games and I started playing like Pokemon Go. And like these are things I did, not because like I had like an interest at first, although now that's kind of fun, but I did it because I knew there was a whole group of people that weren't in church, that weren't getting connected, that weren't being loved on in these areas. And I'm like, well, just shoot, I'm gonna walk into these areas and I'm just gonna be there. And I'm just gonna love and I'm gonna connect. What part of your life looks like a highway and byway life? What part of your life has you going to the hedges of society and loving well? What part of your life has you saying yes to the people that are in your orbit that are super different from you and leaning into them and moving towards them? What part of you has said yes to these assignments in your life? And we'll finish this way. Do you remember when Jesus was praying to Father before he went up uh, and, and died for everyone uh, ever? Do you remember, <laughs> do you remember what, he, what he said? He said, God, I've taken care of the people that you sent to me. I think that, that Jesus showed this really great lifestyle, language, and posture that's illuminating for us, that everyone that comes into my orbit is someone, is someone for me to exercise the love of Jesus with. They may be there an hour. They may be there a year. They may be there a decade. They may be there for the rest of my life. Yea, for life, friends. They may be in my orbit for the rest of my life or one minute. But I've got to ask myself the question, am I being faithful to the narrative or the story that Father is doing in me and through me to everyone around me? Because if I am, I believe it'll have me moving to connect to people's stories and making my story their story and their story my story. So it's no longer, hey, my story looks like this, but it's like, hey, our story is pretty cool right now. And there will always be personal effort that's God's design for you to steward well within your own story. But so much of your stewardship is about the people around you and you stewarding lives well and your investment in those lives.